Two grieving Jewish mothers meet. Miriam Peretz pays a shiva call to Mrs. Devorah Paley. So much inspiration today. And did you know that Beatty Deitch, a.k.a. Speedy Beatty, is my dear friend? Well, she's calling in from Africa, where she's currently race training. So that's going to be fun. And is Barney the Dinosaur the answer to terrorism? You're not going to believe this. This is the Weekly Squeeze. I am your talented and humble host, Hanala Music, coming at you from the land of Israel, where my fingers and toes are cold, but my heart is warm. That is the Israeli winter for you. Your fingers are cold, your toes are cold, but your heart's warm. And that is all that matters. Who needs customer service when your heart is warm? (laughs) There was no milk in this country all week. It was so bizarre. And like nobody even makes a big deal. That's one of the things that I'm still adjusting to as far as the mentality here. Like there's no milk. There's no milk. And nobody's flustered. Nobody's picketing. Like Israelis are not panicking that there's no milk. Like, God forbid they should miss a bowl of cereal. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if that's specifically American, but from what I remember, the American supermarkets have about 800 brands of cereal in every flavor. Each cereal has uh, its own community now. It's like Cheerios used to be plain Cheerios and Honey Nut Cheerios, and now it's the whole Cheerios neighborhood. It's just the Americans that are frustrated that there's no milk. Okay, my kids happen to love cereal. Okay, well, this, but I digress. This week, we mourned. And when I say we mourned, you know, it struck, a, it struck up a very interesting conversation on Instagram, which I didn't really get into at great depth or length. But people felt that sharing footage from funerals, from a family that just found out that their loved one was brutally murdered in a terrorist attack, you know, the kind of footage that we've been seeing all the years, families just completely destroyed, grieving, sobbing, wailing at funerals, you know, thrown on gravestones, just falling apart in public in in complete devastation about what just occurred to them. So the question becomes, when does sharing footage or photographs from these funerals become exploitative? When does it become too much? When does it become a breach of privacy? How can we determine what should be shared and what shouldn't be shared at all? So the question becomes what the intention of sharing these photographs, these videos, these stories actually is. So I'm sitting here at my desk and I have two books in front of me. One is called Living Beyond Terrorism, Israeli Stories of Hope and Healing by Ziva Dauber Converser that is a compilation of stories, personal recounts of terrorism and how it just blew up their world, pardon the pun, or pun intended rather. And it's gory and it's hard to read and it's painful and it's infuriating and it's just a very vivid reminder of the obscene things the Israelis have had to experience here, the Jewish people have had to experience here in the land of Israel just to live here, just to live here in the land of Israel. There's another great book that I would recommend um, called Waiting for Peace, How Israelis Live with Terrorism. I'm trying to remember where I got this. I got this at some event here in Israel where they were giving it out, also Geffen Publishing House. And this book is also so heartfelt better written than the first one, I'll be honest. But um, you really, 
understand the trauma that Israelis have been through. So watching the clip this week of the boy at the cemetery sobbing, eulogizing his brother with a microphone and all the Bahram around him and just wailing and sobbing, watching that clip, first feeling was just such deep sorrow. I was just so deeply sad for Am Yisrael. And I was just, it was so personal. It was just so deeply personal. And this whole thing has been so personal. And it always is personal. Because Israel, the Jewish people, we are one. We are family. We are a tribe. We are connected. We are brothers. And when one brother bleeds, we all feel the pain. So to see a mother grieving like that, you think to yourself, how is she ever going to get out of that darkness? You know, what would I do? How would I do that? God forbid. Or if you're experiencing that, you're thinking, oh, she doesn't even know what she's facing yet. Like, it's just unbearable because you already know the pain and the grieving and the absolute void in your life when something tragic takes away a loved one from your fold, from your arms. But the question remains, is it invasive? Do people need privacy to grieve? At the end of the day, there are people, therapists, psychologists, medical professionals, people who've experienced this that might know better than me and be like, no, absolutely not. When you share people grieving, you, they're not in the right headspace to decline. And it's just shameful to put a camera on someone's face and let them break down and, and grieve without publicizing it. And even you know, people say exploiting it. I don't think it's exploiting it, but okay let's say the press and so on. But this week, a video um, was on twi- was put out on Twitter, someone posted it, of the Shiva tent. Now, in Israel, you have tents in the parking lots where Shiva is Shiva's held. So apartments in Israel are small, they're up a couple of floors, so they just put a tent into the parking lot, if it fits, if it works, and most often it does, and they put up a shiva sign, and that's where the husband sits. If it's cold, they put heaters. If it's hot, well, they shvitz. So often, video from the shiva tents are is shared online. Like Bibi Netanyahu and his wife went to visit the Paley's, Mrs. Paley, to be Menachem and you know, press was with them, and that's just the way it is. And Baruch Hashem, I, I've never had to experience this firsthand, but from what I'm seeing, the terrorism here in Israel Unfortunately, it unites the people, unites the country. It, it unites people who've experienced terror, and most Israelis have. So they share it, and they connect, and they make support groups, and they're there for each other, and they grieve together. We have Yom HaZikaron, Yom HaZmut. These holidays are taken very seriously by Israelis. You know, you sing the national anthem, and you remember the soldiers fallen, whatever you're philosophy or personal beliefs are about the anthem or anything Israeli. So to share the experience of the Shiva um, tent with the public, it just provides another way for Israelis to process what happened, what they're going to do about it, and what the future holds for them here in the land of Israel. So these are important political issues as well. So this is probably why the content is shared and always has been, 
You know, photographs of terrorism in Israel have always been published, and there's no reason to hide it. There's no reason to pretend that it didn't happen and quickly clean up a bus explosion that killed 50 people, uh, you know, middle of Tel Aviv, and tomorrow everything goes back to normal. I always wondered about that. What do you mean goes back to normal? Why should we go back to normal? Absolutely not. We should put a big monument everywhere. The country would be full of monuments, which it is, but it would be even fuller. We can't just go back to normal. We have to experience it. We have to see it. We have to witness it. We have to internalize it. And we have to move forward. And that was so, that's what was so beautiful about the visit between um, uh, Miriam Perez and Mrs. Devar Paley. So let me tell you a little bit about Miriam Perez first. Not Perez. Perez. My bad. So Miriam Perez is an incredible woman. Let me just share some of the ways that this woman is an absolute hero here in Israel. Now, before you're thinking, oh my gosh, she's on the podcast. She's not on the podcast. And the reason she's not on the podcast is because she's, she told me her English is just not good enough. But we'll, again, we'll get to that soon. Who is this woman? Well, I read her book a couple of years ago. And I just, it, it just, it's one of the most powerful books I ever read. It absolutely um, solidified my understanding of what terrorism does to the Israeli mother and how many mothers have experienced it and how committed they still are to the cause. Well, obviously, the cause is Eretz Yisrael. This is home. There's nowhere else to go. This is where it is. This is where it's at. This is our home. The, the land, the state, the country, the location, all of it, it's ours, fair and square. So, you know, terrorism, it, it sucks, but it's the price that you pay. So Miriam Peretz is one of the mothers who paid that price. She paid that price twice. Twice, um, the army came to her doorstep to let her know that her son was killed in action. Two sons. And both of them were passionate Israelis, and they both wanted to be in the army. And, they, and she said, no, maybe you shouldn't. And her second son, if I'm not mistaken, didn't have to enroll after what had happened to his, his older brother. I think he wanted to enroll. Just remarkable. So what does she do with this pain? What does she do with this pain? She turns it into absolutely changing the landscape of emotional well-being here for Israeli soldiers all across the country by speaking to them, by speaking to them and helping them from a Torah perspective, from a Torah perspective, grieve and deal with the pain and use it as a catalyst for change. And that's what she does. That is her mission in life. All she does is speak here in the country of Israel to survivors of terrorism so she can uplift these families and promote a, a message of, of hope and of unity and solidarity as Israelis. Um, she has a, a whole bunch of prizes. The, Is the Israel Prize, the Presidential Medal of Distinction, the French Legion of Honor, amongst others. She's a very impressive lady, Bekitzer, and she ran for office here in Israel. She did not win, but she did run for, um, for office. So She has a fascinating story. You really have to read it. She came from Morocco as a young child. She had a very poor childhood, and just the sacrifice her parents actually made to come to Israel, and then for her to lose two sons here, who love the land so much. It's really, really profound. So she goes to the Paley Shiva house to pay a Shiva call to Mrs. Devorah Paley, whose two sons, ages eight and six, were murdered 
uh, Arab Shabbos last week by a Palestinian terrorist who drove over them twice. So she's sitting and she's sitting Shiva and you can only imagine. And Mrs. Peretz comes in, Miriam Peretz. And you think to yourself, how can one comfort a woman who has lost two children at the same time? And the only one who can do that, the only one who can offer words of inspiration is Miriam Peretz because she buried two sons because they were Jews living here in Israel. And she tells her, when David HaMelech's son was sick, David HaMelech sat on the floor and he grieved and he mourned and he didn't eat and he didn't drink. And then when his servants came to tell him that his son had passed, the next word in Tanakh, she tells Mrs. Paley, is Vayakum. And he got up and he ate and he drank. And his servants asked him, Your Majesty, why did you mourn on the floor when your son was sick and then get up when he died? And the king told them, it's done. There's nothing that can be done. My son is gone. There's, there's nothing else that could be done. There's no sense in mourning. So Miriam Peretz tells Mrs. Paley, we have to get up. There's nothing else you can do. You just have to get up. She says, the boys are not here. The boys are up in heaven with their father. They're taken care of. Their spirits are here and their spirits are bringing us together, but the boys are not here. So we get up. And Mrs. Paley replies, you're strengthening us. Us. You're strengthening us. And Miriam Peretz says, no, you're strengthening us. And Mrs. Paley says, no, I'm seeing here someone who got up. Vayakum. And it's just such a powerful moment of inspiration and connection and two Jews consoling each other and connecting in their sorrow. And I think that is something that we need to see. I think that is something that Am Yisrael needs to see. Number one, because it's so inspiring and meaningful. We have so many wonderful, holy people in our society that we don't hear or see enough of. And sometimes you have to see them in their pain to know their greatness. So I fully support sharing these videos. On top of it, I hate to break it to you, but it is just accepted in Israeli society to share content from Pigoim. Because I'm not saying the, the, the terribly gory ones, but Israel has to know what's going on here. And so do you. And so does every single Jew around the world. You have to know what's going on here and you have to see it with your own eyes. And no, we would rather not have to share such terrible news. I would rather not have thousands of people watch my Instagram stories this week because they need to connect with Israel. I would rather, well, you could keep up the numbers by all means, but you know what I'm saying. The point of the matter is we don't want videos of inspiration. We want videos of joy. That's the bottom line. The fact that we have incredible people in our society, yes, we do, especially women. We have incredible women in our society, and I'm proud to be one of them. <laughs> humble? Humble who? Anyway, as far as having her on the show goes, I sent her a voice note, and she told me she is super busy. She doesn't have a second. And then she left me one more voice note that was just, it really summed it up. It really just summed it up in 23 seconds. So you can listen to that and, yeah, garner some strength and understand what it actually takes to live here in Israel as a Jew. I can speak about the pain of Am Israel in this time only in, in the words, in Hebrew words, because only in these words you can explain the situation 
how can I explain the word, the sentence, Mesirut Nefesh? It's not sacrifice. It's Mesirut Nefesh. So I'm sorry. I mean, if that doesn't say it all. This week's episode of The Weekly Squeeze has been brought to you by Attention all brides and grooms-to-be in Israel. Are you tired of the hassle and stress of receiving gifts from loved ones abroad for your big day? Look no further than Labayat Gifts, Israel's number one wedding registry service. You heard me right, wedding registry in Israel. It all started with a simple proposal here in Israel when Akiva and Bracha were bombarded with requests from family and friends around the world who wanted to share in their joy by sending wedding gifts. But the logistics were a nightmare. I can tell you shipping here in this country, well, it's not Amazon Prime to say the least. So all those bulky and heavy, fragile items, they couldn't be shipped and Israeli websites were out of the question. So thankfully, Labayat's gifts have the solution to all your gift receiving woes. With their user-friendly registry service, you can easily and conveniently receive high-quality gifts from local artists and international brands, all delivered straight to your door. The Hassan and Kala are going to open the door, and voila, their wedding gifts are going to be there. Over a thousand English-speaking couples in Israel have created their own wedding registries with Labayit, so you know you're in good hands. So say goodbye to the stress and frustration of receiving wedding gifts, and hello to the joy and excitement of your special day, thanks to Labayit Gifts. How do you do this, you're asking yourself? Well, head down to my show notes right now. Click on the link, and just like Bracha and Akiva make your gift-giving experience stress-free and memorable, Labayit Gifts. Click on the link and let them know I sent you. Did you guys hear the Ben Shapiro Yetir Rosenberg debate slash discussion that came out of Boca this week? I listened to it on the Habima podcast by Ephraim Goldberg, and uh, I thought it was great. I mean, those guys, between the two of them, they know a lot. It was interesting because they definitely have a history, I guess, of disliking each other's politics and approach. And that was apparent throughout the conversation. You know, they know a ton about anti-Semitism. There's no question about that. They know a ton about everything. And they talk very quickly and they're very, very intelligent. And it was definitely like impressive. <laughs> like totally cool. Amazing. That's right. Well, what I took away from it is how interesting anti-Semitism could be when you address it or when you perceive it rather from a political lens where it becomes who's a bigger anti-Semite, Obama or Trump or Elon Omar or Mary Taylor Greene, whatever her name is. So the, the conversation ended up being a lot about that, which is interesting because there were some very valid points made. And it's clear that Ben Shapiro has a fan following out there in Boca because they definitely applauded for him. I think Yair did win a point when he criticized Ben for his approach, because sometimes Ben Shapiro could be a little aggressive, I've heard. <laughs> um, but he also suggested that perhaps he should be less critical of different groups of humanity and that Jews should never criticize anyone. We should just self-criticize, which we are very good at. So I thought that was valid. But then again, that's Ben Shapiro's job. You know, and they did talk about Candace Owens and Ben said, I can't fire her because she didn't do anything fire worthy. No, she did not do anything fire worthy. Technically. Um, did she make the Jews like her anymore in the last six months? No. But we're a tiny minority and I guess the Daily Wire doesn't need us. <laughs> so what we think about Candace Owens is irrelevant. The fact of the matter is, yes, there are virulent anti-Semites and we can get into that in depth and we will. I have some great 
people coming on the show who know a lot about the history of anti-Semitism, and some of it is fascinating, and I cannot wait to get into it with you, the nitty-gritty, and it's, it's just, it's important to know, and we're going to make it interesting. Anyways, I'm not going to get into the debate or the conversation at great length. You can actually listen to it, or um, you cannot, and save yourself an hour and a half by just recognizing there's really nothing you can do about anti-Semitism. That's right. All right, another exciting story for all of you baby boomers or millennials, sorry, millennials, okay? Baby boomers, you were raising millennials. So maybe you're, you're going to be excited too. Mattel has unleashed excitement amongst millennials and their offspring with the announcement of the triumphant return of the polarizing purple dinosaur Barney. This time, however, Barney is going to be gracing TV screens in animated form. So it's going to be a cartoon Barney. They are totally revitalizing the brand with a new flagship television series to air globally in 2024, a film, YouTube content, music, toys, books, and apparel for kids and kids at heart. So you're telling me that Barney's coming back? That's exciting. I have a million questions. First of all, how many of you actually have a Barney dinosaur in your house? We did because we had a kid that was obsessed with Barney. We fell into it, and I actually thought that Barney was pretty awesome. I thought that the content was very, you know, basic, not controversial, just simple enough that kids could watch it, repetitive enough that you could lose your mind while watching it, and Barney was cool, you know? It didn't matter what his politics were, but in today's day and age, how the heck are they going to find that balance? There is no way they're going to find that balance. I mean, Barney's all about love and kindness, and according to Josh Silverman, the chief franchise officer over at Mattel, uh, that has stood the test of time. Uh, Yeah, except when everybody's woke. Like, Barney went to sleep, he's a dinosaur, he took a nap, he hibernated, and then he woke up and the whole world was woke. So how are you going to put out a show now without offending people? There's going to be something about Barney that offends people. There are going to be purple-skinned people who feel that he didn't represent them properly because he's a little too purple. And then there's going to be other purple people who are upset that he's not purple enough. So this is, I mean, this is already doomed. Like, there's no way that this is going to work. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I am all for seeing Barney back on the screen because my kids don't watch TV anymore. So I am not going to be affected by this at all. But if you have children who don't watch Tovito, they might end up watching Barney. So let me tell you some of the conspiracy theories just so I give you the heads up what's coming your way in 2024. There are people who believe Barney's evil. There are people who believe that Barney is an evil character and that the TV show was created to brainwash children, which reminds me of a TV show that brainwashes children to be terrorists, which reminds me of a video clip that went around Twitter this week. A bunch of preschool children dressed to the T as terrorists performing terrorism in their nursery class, two and three-year-olds. We're going to talk about that soon, but let's just get back to Barney for a second because now I'm thinking, you know, Barney might be the solution to terrorism or Barney might be a terrorist, depending on what conspiracy theory you believe. There are people who believe Barney is a demon, okay, that he's a demon or a devil in disguise and that the character was designed to lead children away from Christianity towards a more demonic worldview. There are people who believe that Barney is a government experiment, that he's like the Gollum of Prague. He's actually a dinosaur that's alive. And all this time he's been on vacation somewhere and now he's making his big comeback. And then, and then there are people who believe that Barney is a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Okay, so everyone calls him a dinosaur, but some conspiracy theorists believe he's actually a Tyrannosaurus Rex in disguise. Okay, so there's a lot of things that we don't know about Barney, but all I know he is coming back to TV 
and hopefully he will not be teaching American children about terrorism because you never know in this woke society. Here in the Middle East, I would say that 99% of the children, considering how many Muslim children and Arab children live in the Middle East, are 99% of the children are watching television that supports terrorism and that brainwashes them to believe that terrorism is, is, is a life, is a way of life. Literally, from when they are small, they are indoctrined with terrorism. I saw a video clip today that, that, let, that made my hair, my hair stand up. I mean, you literally see a preschool that could be an Israeli preschool where my kids went to school. And, and it's the same fluorescent light and the same little tables and chairs, except everyone in that kindergarten is dressed up like a member of Hamas. And they're holding kids on stretchers that have been martyred. And, they're, and they have kids wearing uh, soldier uniforms with the Star of David uh, as a patch around their around their arms and the little kids are shooting it and stabbing it and killing it. I mean, this is a death cult. This is a society that teaches children to murder and it's all on a lie. Okay. So I think the Palestinians need more Barney. I think they should shut off TV. And the only thing that should air in the West Bank and Gaza, at least for now, and then we'll spread out to other countries is Barney the dinosaur. I think, I think that's the secret. I love you. You love me. We're one big happy family. With a great big hug and a kiss from me to you, won't you say you love me too? Barney is the solution to terrorism. That's right. All right. A few people have asked me recently if I am still selling trees. (laughs) Um, I don't sell trees, but through my podcast, you can have the opportunity to plant a tree here in Israel. And I went to the hills out in Shoresh, about 20 minutes from Beit Shemesh, 20 minutes to Yerushalayim, and I planted a tree with my bare arms, with my bare hands. I got on the ground, and I dug a hole, and I planted the tree, and I covered it with dirt, and I left my little name card. And from now on, there's going to be a tree in my name growing in Israel. So a few people asked me how they could do it, what are the details. Let me just explain it to you like this. If you have, let's say, a 20th year anniversary, instead of spending money on something that is going to be digested (laughs) within a few hours— Spend that money and plant 20 trees here in the land of Israel in honor of your anniversary or for a loved one. If you want to do something to show that you are thinking about a loved one or the loss of somebody, you can, with a gesture, express that in a very deep way by planting a tree in Israel in their name. So that's another option. There's a link in my show notes. You could click on it. The website is very self-explanatory. You can easily just put in the information who the tree is for. And and the guy, what, is, what was his name? Avi, Eli, one of these Israeli guys, he will plant the tree. He will actually plant the tree for you and he will repopulate the forest that burnt to smithereens. See, the forest was full of pine trees. Ironically, I grew up on pine tree dry, but Miami's very humid. Here in Israel, it could get really dry. So last year, there was a massive forest fire that took out thousands of pine trees. And then they hopped the Israelis that pine trees burn like crazy. Not only did they burn like crazy, once they burn, all the little pine tree pine cones, they just, even if they're completely burnt, they just replant themselves and another forest of pine trees grows. It's phenomenal. So they have to tear out those pine trees and they're replanting it with plants that are not so flammable. So you can be a part of that by going down to my show note links and buying yourself a tree in Israel. This is all part of an initiative from Israel 365. Tully Weiss is my neighbor. We have his Bible here in the house. He's involved in some pretty awesome projects on behalf of the Jewish people. And I am excited to share with you that you can still plant a tree in the land of Israel. Some more good news coming out of the science world from a couple of scientists who took one for the team and swallowed Lego heads. 
all in the name of science. They wanted to check once and for all what would happen if they swallowed a piece of Lego because apparently they, they're seeing patients in the emergency room constantly who swallowed Lego because kids just put it in their mouth and they try to pry apart two pieces and one piece ends up down their throat. And what happens when a kid tells you they swallowed a piece of Lego? You, you panic. You start freaking out. You know, you're pounding them on the back. You're like, how could you, you idiot? Yeah, I know I shouldn't say idiot. I'm sorry, but a mommy's very angry. So the hospitals are seeing a lot of kids who swallow Legos. So six doctors swallowed a Lego head and they did an entire experiment where they tried to figure out how long it would take to get the Lego head out of their system. And they had a good time doing it. They came up with two acronyms to describe this stool hardness and transit test, S-H-A-T, the SHAT test, and the found and retrieved time test, the FART test. <laughs> I could do not. So six doctors swallowed a Lego head. Five of them found it. One of them didn't. But because the five of them found it so quickly, they determined that Lego heads are, in fact, safe to swallow. Your kid can swallow a Lego head and pass it. So if I just saved you a trip to the ER, thank you so much. Please subscribe to my podcast and share it in your family WhatsApp. That said, you should definitely be careful when your kids are around small objects. I once had a seven-year-old swallow a marble. I wasn't concerned. My husband was freaking out. He still thinks it didn't come out of her system because I never saw it. There was never evidence. I could assure you that the marble came out of her system. But if your kid swallows a magnet or a battery or, God forbid, cleaning products, medications, that kind of stuff, you do take them to the ER. If they swallowed a Lego head, you just chide them because Legos are expensive unless you want to look through their poo. I told you this would be a feel-good episode. Uh, our last feel-good story before we get to our feel-good guest, Beatty Deutsch, a.k.a. Speedy Beatty. Did you hear this? Lily Brosh, an Orthodox Jewish woman with a rare form of muscular dystrophy, makes history by becoming the first model with muscular dystrophy to walk down the runway unassisted at New York's Fashion Week. She modeled a gold sari from the brand Rondawa, which specializes in modern South Asian style. Despite being scheduled on Shabbat, Lily found a way to participate and still maintain her faith. Amazing. She quickly headed to a nearby hotel to welcome Shabbat with her sisters. She has been an activist for disability rights and has founded the Born to Prove Foundation, which promotes disability awareness and breaking barriers. Jewish women are amazing. This is impressive stuff. She has also, okay, just in case you are feeling a little lazy and unmotivated and don't have a mother who sent them David Goggins videos, subtly hinting to them that they should go for a walk. Um, she has also climbed Camelback Mountain in Arizona, competed in bodybuilding competitions, and loves going to the gym. So this woman is not lazy. She doesn't have a lazy bone in her body, no matter what challenges Hashem has given her. She hopes to inspire people with disabilities and represent strength and beauty for the next generation. After her modeling debut, she hopes to see other models with disabilities on the runway. Well, Lily, if you are listening, or if somebody listening knows Lily, I'd love to talk to you. I'm hearing about you for the first time today. So please... Come on to the Weekly Squeeze. Share your story. You are indeed beautiful. And I would love to know more about you and what gave you the courage to put yourself out there and follow your dreams. Because a lot of people think that it's difficult. But here you are proving that it doesn't mean it's not possible. Speaking about the impossible, Speedy Beatty's here. Beatty Deutsch is my friend. She is a professional athlete. She is a winner. She is a mom. She is a super talented runner. 
She runs and she's amazing at it. And no matter what she goes through, whether she wins or loses, whether she comes in three quarters of a millisecond before or after her goal, she is always humble and she runs for the right reasons. And I adore her. I spent many hours with her a couple months back with Jamie Geller. We went to the hotel together and we just spent the day in the spa getting massages and having breakfast and sitting by the pool. And it was just dreamy. And we talked and we connected and we bonded. And I love Beatty and I'm always happy to talk to her. So without further ado, all the way from Kenya, Beatty Deitch. What is up, girl? Israel misses you. Hi, Beatty. <laughs> Welcome to the Weekly Squeeze. Good morning. Uh, thank you. I miss Israel, too. It's like I'm in my final week here. I'm ready to come. Uh, it's amazing experience and the training's going well, but I definitely miss home, miss Israel, miss my kids. <laughs> well, can you tell people listening where you are at this moment? Because you're not in Beit Shemesh. Nope. I am in Eaton, Kenya. Eaton, home of the champions, um, a very small rural town in Kenya, training with, you know, some of the top athletes in the world. Training to? So I'm going to be running the Tokyo Marathon um, on March 5th. It's a world major, and it's my first big race in about a year. Thank God. Baruch Hashem. I find it so fascinating. Not that you're... you're able to compete at this level. What I find fascinating is that you're able to function when you're constantly losing things. Did you really lose your sister's laptop? <laughs> did you lose your sister's laptop? Oh my gosh. Yes, I did. I literally, okay. Getting on that plane, I was a walking zombie because leading up to that flight, I was just working so hard to make sure everything was set up before I left. And the flight was at like midnight and we flew to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And then I flew to Nairobi, Kenya, and I left the airport in the security in Ethiopia. But I only realized when I was in Kenya and we were doing security again, and all of a sudden the laptop wasn't there. What a bummer. But, um, no, Baruch Hashem, I got the laptop back. Oh, literally. I must have missed that. Yes. Yes. Isn't that crazy? The best place to leave laptops is at security, just if, in case anyone wants to know. You're like, if you're going to lose a laptop, lose it at security in the airport. All right. Duly noted. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but one second. If, if, you, if you are not a runner and you're not an athlete, can you just, you know, we, we have no clue what your day is like. Can you just describe what your last day or two or three or week has been like so we can kind of live vicariously through you for a minute or two? Yeah. So just to preface why I came to Kenya, um, most endurance athletes go to higher elevation. It's called high altitude. And so Kenya is about 2,400 meters above sea level. And what that does is your body is forced um, to adapt. There's less oxygen in the air. So then your body gets stronger as a result. It's harder to run at high altitude. But when you come back down to sea level, you actually run faster and feel stronger. So it's like a benefit you need a minimum of three weeks at altitude to experience the benefit. That's why I came to Kenya for three weeks. Now, um, I ran about 200 kilometers each week that I'm here. So that means every morning I'm getting up and I'm going for like a 20 to 25 kilometer run. Um, then we're doing stretching, core exercises, strength training, 
Then I'll come back to where I'm staying and do like an ice bath that's freezing, which is why I'm actually freezing right now because it takes me like an hour to warm up after I do this ice bath. Um, then you try, you know, you got to eat, you got to recover, you got to rest. And I'll do a massage every couple of days because then we do another run in the afternoon around five. Um, and then it's like, get ready, dinner, wind down and go to sleep. You're just exhausted. So it's a real <laughs> so test of your, very- it's a real test of your endurance, this whole, this whole experience. Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, and you have to be very in tune with your body and you also have to be very focused on recovering because you're putting in so much effort and working your body so hard, but you can only get the benefit if you sleep enough and eat properly and relax, you know? Plus you're a mother. That's like something that's just the fact of the matter. Plus you are, I think you're one of the few women out there at this moment. What is that like being a Jewish female petite little white girl in Africa? Oh my goodness. You cannot imagine, like no one can handle the fact that I run in a skirt here. Automatically, when you come to Kenya and you're a white girl, you stand out. They have a word for it. It's called like mangzumo. So everyone knows, everyone notices you, you, you're standing out. But then no, the fact that I run all my runs in a skirt, they just like, every time I run, they're like asking me, why are you training skirts? Like you not wear training pants or like, they just stop and like ask me how I'm doing. They love that I've come from Israel. Everyone wants to hear about Israel. It's very Christian in Kenya. So they all get very excited because Israel is where Jesus was born and, but whatever, they're also spiritual. Um, Yeah, it's wild how many comments I've gotten about my skirt here. Um, And I kind of just feel like, and they respect it because they appreciate, they appreciate like modesty and, and, and values, traditional values. So I feel like I'm like a Jewish queen running in Kenya. I love that. A Jewish queen running in Kenya. That's going to be the caption for the podcast (laughs) for the episode. (laughs) Wow. So are you, are you experiencing all those like runner highs? Describe like on an emotional level, what you are feeling at the moment? There are so many emotions. So yeah, definitely. I, I feel a lot of, you know, when I get through a hard workout, you always feel that runner's high and there's been some amazing workouts and, you know, I've seen myself making progress and I'm proud of the work I'm putting in. There's also like, this is all leading up to the big marathon in Tokyo. So I'm not going to feel relaxed until after I do the marathon. It's kind of like whenever you're building up towards a big race, there's a lot of anticipation. There's low level anxiety because you have your own performance expectations and, you know, Israel sponsors me. So I feel like, uh, expectations from that. And, and, and so I think there's those, the emotion of like, in a certain sense, enjoying the experience, but also like wanting to feel like, okay, I got done what I set out to do. And I'm not going to know that until after the race. And the truth is though, I've really tried to focus this time on leaning into the process and just enjoying the process and not getting so caught up in the outcome. And part of the amazing thing about being here in Kenya is that there's a lot of opportunity for me to do self-reflection and just work on myself and grow in areas that I don't normally get to do when I'm so busy at home with my kids and family. And it's, and, and I'm cherishing that. 
and yeah, I'm definitely, I'm trying to hold on and make the most of every moment. And I'm sure that as soon as I'm back, I'm going to be like, wow, like I, I can't believe that just flew by and I want to go back, you know? Wow. What, what an experience. What an experience. Wow. And and on top of it, you're so normal. <laughs> it's like at the end of the day, like we're, you know. Oh, I am very normal. Yes. I want everyone to know that. I'm 100% like every single one of you. <laughs> fantastic. It's really fantastic. Okay. But the most important thing of all is the purpose or what motivates you to keep running. And that is Beit Daniela. So for people who, listening who've never heard of Beit Daniela, can you just tell us a little bit about this mental health clinic for girls here in Israel that you are so personally connected with and what keeps you running the cause? Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for bringing that up, actually. Um, so Beit Daniela was founded in memory of my cousin, Daniela Pardes, who um, unfortunately struggled with anorexia and took her own life at 14. Every time I say it, it's like, it's not like I haven't shared the story a hundred times, but every time I say it, like, I just feel, yeah, I feel the weight of that. And the fact that she was so young and that there are so many teenagers who struggle with mental health issues. And so Beit Daniela is actually a unique rehabilitative center. It's not just for girls, it's for teens um, struggling with any kind of mental health issues. It's really to help when they come out of hospitalization to help them transition back to their everyday lives because you cannot do that on your own. And that was the gap in Daniela's whole, when she came out of the hospital, there was no program for her. And even though her family was so dedicated and caring, she just wasn't, it, it was so hard to transition back to school. And she felt she felt so, you know, alone and hard on, and it was hard for her. She felt so negative about herself. And Beit Daniela is the most empowering, warm place. They have, they have all their schooling there. They have all their therapy there. They have the dogs and the horses. And I've been there so many times. And every time I go, just like, I see it in action. I see the kids and I see how they're changing and growing and it's really saving lives. And, um, I, every year I commit to raising, uh, personally myself, 100,000 shekel, maybe 120,000 shekel this year. I haven't even started my campaign yet, but I'm, I, it, when I get back to Israel right before Tokyo, I think that's when I'm going to put out that goal out there. It's a big deal for me because I'm not a major fundraiser, but I've seen how with everyone's support from the around the world, like really only because of all of you, all of the people who have contributed, have I been able to reach my goal? And it's so amazing and meaningful for the kids of Beit Daniela because they see that people from around the world care about them and are invested in their journey and want to help them, you know, get back to normal. And that's really what it's taking a stance, you know, in empowering our teens that we care and that mental health matters and that we're trying to make a change in this area. I was there and I was just amazed. It was such a dreamy day. There were all the dogs there, including Daniela's little Cocker Spaniel, was it, I think? Yeah. yeah and the yeah, horses yeah. and the environment. And I spoke to the girls and I actually was there when there were a group of therapists um, having like a meeting outside. And I was like, this is a place where every single girl's future is thought about and cared about. And Yes, exactly. Okay. Well, what can I say? You are awesome. I certainly couldn't do what you were doing. 
I'm happily sitting here and talking for a living. You run for a living and I will talk for a living. <laughs> exactly. I couldn't do what you're doing. Hanala, your podcast is amazing. I love your passion. I love that you always get the latest news and that you just, and you're not afraid to take a stance and keep, keep doing it. Keep going strong. You're making a huge difference in our world and Aww. I really respect and admire your work. Thank you. And <laughs> for real. thank you. And I will see you in the hotel with Jamie Geller when you get back. Amen. Okay. All right. Great. Wishing we're, we're all rooting for you, BD. We're all rooting for you. Thank you. So there you have it. Episode 86 of the Weekly Squeeze. Don't forget to share a link to my show in a family WhatsApp group. Don't forget to hit up my show note links and spread the word about a bridal registry in Israel. And while you're there, please leave me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to my show on Spotify. And I will see you on Monday.